Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This week, we're going to be speaking with Lan Pham. Now, she is an environment Canterbury counselor and has a real expertise in conserving our freshwater and native fish of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now, I'll admit that I did not know much about native fish, so I really learned a lot during this interview. If you enjoy this, then you might want to check out some of the others in the back catalog, and I'm sure that other people you know would enjoy having it shared with them as well. Now, let's get straight into this interview with Lan. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Lan Pham, who's an Environment Canterbury Counselor, to the show today. Kia ora, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's good to have you here. You know, I think we met at one of the Impact lunches, although you came to a dinner, I think, didn't you? Yes, that's right. I yeah. think you'd done a number of dinners, or lunches and dinners by then, but yeah. it, was just, it was such a cool experience. Like, I mean, I, I feel like I just got a taster of, you know, this sort of organization whether it be the pod- podcast or the dinners and that kind of thing that you're doing. And it was just really cool, like such an awesome bunch of people. Yeah, it was fun. And the the great thing was that you wrote to me afterwards and you said, thank you, I really appreciated it. And I think sometimes when you organize things, people don't necessarily tell you afterwards. So it's <laughs> yeah. actually really refreshing that somebody would write to me. And I remember I got you to do like a paragraph on what you know, what you'd appreciate it. So thank you so much yeah. for that. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I, I, I guess I like to notice when people put in a lot of themselves mm. into things, like especially events. And yeah, credit where credit's due. That was great. Yeah. Oh, that's good <laughs> to hear. Well, uh, what we do on the show is that we jump into the time machine I have over here mm-hmm. and we go back in time and we find out about people's backgrounds and where they're from. And then usually that helps us understand why they do what they do today. So in your case, if we could go back in time, because I'm curious about what you're doing today. I know you're passionate about it, and I want to understand that. But I also want to understand how you got here. So when you were four or five years old, say, where were you living and what was that like? Yeah, cool. Okay, time machine. I like this. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Wellington, Te Whanganui Atara, and... Really, I can only describe my childhood as like this little bubble of good times and bliss, really. Like I was one of six kids and um, my parents were, well, both around, which really helps with a bubble of niceness. Um, But yeah, I, I guess when I tell my story, I always talk about my upbringing as really being like this um lovely place where I really believed like the world was full of really good people which I still think it is (laughs) um but overwhelmingly like it was sort of like everything was taken care of and everything was lovely and I really didn't see especially growing up like a real purpose for myself it was more like, oh, you know, like really smart adults are in charge of that and really right. wise people are making decisions over there for the world. Um, and so I kind of just, yeah, like went through life in Wellington um, with a really awesome like extended family and that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. And with um, my mom's grandparents 
also, my mum's parents also there. And yeah, it was just lovely. So were there cousins and extended family in that sense as well? Yeah, um, lots of cousins. So my mum, like my heritage is my mum came from sort of like Irish, English, European mm-hmm. um, background and her family were all in Wellington, which was awesome. Okay. So we had a lot of cousins and, yeah, our grandparents on her side. And then my dad um, was from Vietnam and he had come over during the war on a scholarship, the Colombo Scholarships, which is a, quite a network of um, students these days. And, yeah, he met my mum at Auckland Uni. Mm. And it was quite interesting because they – you know, I mean, were quite serious early on and it was like my mum as well as her Irish English heritage had very Catholic, like staunch Catholic parents. Mm-hmm. And my dad was very much from um his beliefs he doesn't like to put a label on them, but he's more like in the kind of Buddhist Zen mm-hmm. kind of area. And so yeah, that was quite. You didn't a, go to the local Catholic school. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, my I think my mum in getting with him and eventually marrying him was a bit of a shock, especially to my grandma. Mm. Um, but once they had started having kids, and they had six, um, apparently she softened. Right. To to him and to you know, all of us, obviously. Yeah. So what was that like for you growing up here in New Zealand, but with a father who'd come from somewhere else? Was the culture that he had and grew up with, presumably, you know, like that must have been a big part of his identity. How did that play out in your life as a child? It was really, um, it was really great in terms of what we experienced because particularly my dad, um, some of his sisters in particular mm-hmm. and and actually other family friends who had escaped the war which was going on when he came over to New Zealand um came to live with us when we were younger so we really got that you know like Vietnamese cooking and mm. um we there there weren't generally like specific Vietnamese events and that kind of thing but we'd always go to like Chinese New Year celebrations and that kind of thing um but yeah, it was probably mainly through the food. Like there wasn't much um, storytelling or, you know, and, and maybe it was just us kids like not being interested <laughs> in your parents' history, especially when you're younger. Mm. Um, but, but the food had a big part to play, it sounds definitely, like. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and I think also because on my mum's side, like she wasn't really into cooking that much and that Mm. kind of thing so it was really you could see like the sort of detail and the passion behind like my aunties who would cook for us and the kind of time and pride they'd take in their cooking versus like my mum who would just like slap something together yeah right um so growing up then just take us through as a child then I'm, I'm just curious was Vietnam a place that you thought oh I should go back to visit or I should go did you go back or was it more, I get the sense that Wellington was home. This was yeah. your, your bubble, if you like. Yeah, it was really interesting. I think because of the primary school I went to, mm-hmm. I definitely, it was a really diverse primary school where every, you know, virtually every child had some sort of different ethnicity 
in them. It was like right in central Wellington, actually, um, beside Parliament. So a lot of politicians' kids would go there as well. Right. And so there was, yeah, just this kind of eclectic mix. And I, I often, like reflecting on it, I definitely feel like I never felt like, you know, I did have a sort of, I was sort of other until I actually moved to the South Island. Oh, okay. Which which was much later in life. Yeah. Um, gosh, how old was I moved here? 20, you know, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until then when I sort of would get a lot of questions about, oh, you know, like, where, where are you from? And are you thinking of heading back home and right. that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. I've never thought of myself as sort of different. So I've, I've yeah, very much identified as like, a New Zealander and mm. his Kiwi. Mm. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I'm in some ways similar in that I have an accent, but I actually moved here when I was seven years old. So for me, my entire identity is woven into New Zealand, but people hear my accent and they make assumptions right away. And I imagine with you as well, with your name, they, they might, well, where are you from? Yeah, well, I think I think people are often sort of surprised when mm. I start talking and I've got like quite a strong accent and it's more like oh wow like that's sort of more confusing right (laughs) if anything you know if they are in that kind of mindset where you know you're sort of distinguishing people Mm, mm. with with it's not an easy box to put you in (laughs) yeah yeah exactly there's there there was a lot of definitely I mean growing up and especially later in life the oh you know where are you from Mm. and I'm like you know Wellington and they're like oh no like where are you, you know, really from? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. But yeah. it's, yeah, it's been an interesting part of um, growing up in this, I don't know, new world of just total diverse mm. heritages and stories and ancestry. Mm. And well, I think yeah. there's a more openness as we're moving now into the future. People are more open to embrace the bits of their past, whereas in the past, you know, like, in decades ago, and particularly thinking from a Maori perspective, people were kind of encouraged to leave behind their their language and, and, you know, not focus on that side of things. Whereas these days, I feel like we're a bit more open, you know, and, oh, it's and, and embracing so good. it rather yeah. than, yeah. It's so positive, mm-hmm. that kind of like idea. And I see it a lot, you know, with young people these days where it's like your strength comes from, your you know your diverse heritage really mm, mm-hmm. and it's almost like um it almost feels like it's for some people they're kind of like if they don't have much diversity it's almost can be seen as a negative like oh i i don't have much going on in my heritage and it's like no 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 like <laughs> it's all about you know the story it's just it's just people mm. and um yeah it's just interesting yeah it sure is so to ask a question then kind of on this was the language something that you had or was it mainly the cooking and and your aunties and things from the Vietnamese side yeah um apparently my dad did try to teach us at one stage mm-hmm. and very quickly gave up right <laughs> which was a you real shame all in or all out yeah in some ways, don't you? oh yeah. I would love to be able to speak Vietnamese now like definitely my um my next language after English would be te reo, mm-hmm. but even that I'm just like at a very basic level and mm-hmm. still learning and that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I know like um, 
a few of my cousins, like one of my cousins who my dad's sister also married my mum's brother. Okay. So we're kind of like double cousins. Right. And he um, knows Vietnamese. And he's actually fluent in a number of languages now as well. And we're all so jealous of him. Like, right. But, you know, we've got to be happy with our monolingualism, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And well, keep growing, at least. Yeah. Keep embracing and, and trying different things. So you described that sort of childhood quite, in some ways, sort of sheltered, it sounds like. Um, yeah. Where were you in the birth order of the one to six were you youngest so or oldest i'm or? kind middle-ish mm-hmm. i'm second equal with i've got a twin sister okay um so my oldest brother then twin sister and then two younger sisters and then a younger brother um yeah it was just cool i mean we were just such a tribe um and yeah we lived sort of if you know wellington there's the sort of one primary windmill, which was like the first established yeah, windmill. Yeah, I remember. We sort of like, we look up at that. So ah, we're in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, and now there's heaps along the Makara coast. But yeah, when I flew in there the other, uh, a while back, it was just amazing how many I could see yeah. down there. Because I yeah. lived in Wellington for three years, 2001 to 2004. Oh, so, right. Yeah, I was in Kelburn though, so a little bit different suburb. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's sort of it's sort of the back of um, Zealandia, right. Cory Wildlife Sanctuary. Yeah, it's actually really pretty around there. It's, yeah, it's awesome. It's oh. a lot more wild than people realize once you get back. It is, and it was actually amazing growing up because those covered in gorse, mm. and now it's virtually all have it's regenerated into native bush, which is amazing for that kind of halo effect around. Because the tuis have come back and or they're breeding and oh. The bird life is phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, it's just like an absolute boom mm. compared to even um, 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah, I um, caught the CEO of Zealandia speaking a few months ago and he was talking about um, even in 2005 there being 20 to 30 tuis in the whole of the Wellington region and now you could go into someone's backyard and count that many. It's just yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I get the sense that nature and the environment and things are important to you. Was that something that a theme that was coming through as you're approaching your high school years? Or yeah, it was. Like, I mean, I always enjoyed being out in nature, mm. um, but it wasn't something that really, again, like I just didn't really see my place in it. It was sort of, I, I, I guess, like the overwhelming feeling would be. I felt like that kind of basic view where like humans have destroyed most of nature and that's done and that's a shame, but you know, it is what it is. Mm. I guess that, that would be how I'd describe it. It wasn't sort of more like feeling like I had any personal agency to make change in that area or anything like that. Um, we did like, I mean, I guess I had a few experiences where I, I guess I could think now looking back, they might have contributed to what I'm doing now. Like down the bottom of our gully, we had a little stream and we'd often go on adventures down there and cut tracks through there and that kind of thing. And I remember walking down there one day, like as like further than I'd ever walked down the stream and getting to this really polluted 
part of it just suddenly mm-hmm. and um it turns out that one of the main tips the hut valley tip for wellington um sorry happy valley tip um is in that valley and so somehow it must have like the pollution had backed up or something mm. and I, but i just remember being like just so struck and surprised by that that sort of yeah i I'd, I'd never sort of even thought about the links between the tip being down the valley and our stream and i just right yeah. there was a connection there huh i think so <laughs> yeah 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 oh that's interesting and as you get through your high school years um did you know where you, what you wanted to do next or what type of work or study you wanted to do no i didn't i you know like i i was i was into learning mm-hmm. um so i was into like photography and science and that kind of thing but i wasn't you know a high achiever or anything i was just like getting through school and mm-hmm. um i went to uni straight after school but again it was sort of like oh do some anthropology and some science and a bit of everything and yeah, I mean, I still feel like I really went through my whole undergraduate, which ended up being a Bachelor of Science at Massey and Palmerston North, with no real practical skills, no real understanding of what was actually going on in the world. And <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was just like, I'll just call it cruising. Right. Yeah. So, so I get the sense that you're not cruising now. What what was it that changed for you? Because this is really interesting yeah. to me. You know, your childhood, you feel like it was quite sheltered. Basically, the adults are taking care of us. Everybody's pretty good, mm. you know, um, going through university, cruising along, getting through it. Mm. Um, but now you seem to be quite an active person involved in doing things. Yeah. Was there a point that happened or what? what was the source of the shift? Yeah, it was definitely, it was sort of, it was probably a point within a few years. So when I left uni, mm-hmm. I definitely, um, I had done a few sort of stints on some of our offshore islands, like volunteer stints for the Department of Conservation. Mm-hmm. And I'd sort of had glances at, I guess what I describe as the wonders of Aotearoa's wildlife. Mm. Like, you know, just totally having my mind blown by like our native frogs or um, wetter and that kind of thing, any kind of creatures like that. But it was really, um, after uni, I moved south to Dunedin and started doing this course called Conservation Corps. And that was a lot of like practical stuff, like chainsawing and driving four wheel drives and, you know, like dock work, Mm -hmm. pest control and that kind of thing. And I really loved that, but I sort of started to get an insight into, I guess human's attitude towards the natural world mm-hmm. and um one of the most significant areas i started getting involved in which kind of changed my perspective was working with really endangered native fish mm. and so these are a whole group of species which we like we basically never hear about in new zealand well now is your chance to tell us <laughs> <laughs> well firstly the most commonly encountered fried is whitebait patties. Ah. But whitebait are actually made up of four incredible species from this family of fish called the galaxids. And they're named the galaxids because they're actually named after the galaxy of stars because they've got these incredible, like, glitter gold, sort of Egyptian hieroglyphic patterns all over them. They're just, like, phenomenal to see. And um, 
yeah, I was working, I was sort of meeting all of these endangered fish, especially sort of their biodiversity hotspot is in the South Island. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, like how have I never heard about these fish before? And, you know, people's attitudes, even within Doc, was sort of like, oh, yeah, like they are really cool, but they're just fish and mm. they're not glamorous and, you know, cuddly like the kakapo and the kiwi. So, you know, we sort of do what we can, but essentially they're they're on their way out you know um and i was really like yeah i guess struck with the injustice of that and and just the sort of well if i can care about these fish then i'm sure other people can too Mm -hmm. and who's like whose job is it to tell them about it Mm -hmm. and so i think who's speaking for the fish yeah exactly (laughs) yeah um so i think really soon after that that kind of started forming my Oh well, maybe it maybe it's my responsibility. Maybe I should start using my brain and my voice and actually learning about these creatures and then communicating that. So I started working for the Department of Conservation, and then yeah, got a little bit disillusioned with that because of the kind of attitude to conservation in New Zealand at the time. Mm-hmm. And what era are we talking about? What sort of year was this? So that was 2008 mm-hmm. when I started that course. And so 2009, started working for the Department of Conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, I then... Can I just finish off with the fish? Yeah, yeah. These, like, when they're fully mature, they're not massive fish, are they? They're, they're like... Well... Or are they? Yeah. Please so, okay, <laughs> one of the species, so yep. one of the five white bait species... Mm-hmm is giant kookapoo. Okay. And they, when they're fully grown, they can grow up to half a meter in length. Hmm. And they they have these stunning glitter gold patterns on them and like really big eyes. I often just think of them as like sort of little cute cats just like floating through the water. Hmm. And they're just like, I mean, you got to Google, people, Google them right now. <laughs> um, yeah, they're really amazing. And so they're the biggest ones. But... Some of the smaller ones, maybe fully grown, might be like 10 to 12 centimeters. Mm-hmm. So pretty small fish. Yeah. Um, but but in, there's enough of them surviving the white bait runs <laughs> that yes, they keep producing. Currently. Currently. Yeah. 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 But all, yeah, really under threat. And the habitat loss is just astronomical with these species. It's, um, yeah, really sad. Mm. But what I also what that sort of role with the Department of Conservation kind of drove me towards was going back to uni and doing my master's, more specifically in freshwater ecology. Okay. Because one of the main predators of our native fish is actually our introduced species, the likes of trout and salmon, Mm -hmm. which when it comes to our environmental legislation are absolutely protected, whereas our native fish have no protection basically on them at all. Mm. So again, I was like, hang on, how, how is this the case? And so my master's was really looking into ways to control trout or salmon for the benefit of native fish mm. populations. And it was really through that, in my, by doing my master's and through that, doing a little bit of environmental and resource management law, which I just had my eyes totally opened up to I think first and foremost getting um, coming into contact with our leaders 
particularly our MPs, you know, our members of parliament and um, mayors and that kind of thing. And seeing the things they were saying and the actions that they were taking or not rather not taking more than anything mm. to, um, yeah, that really weren't smart decisions and they weren't for the good of all people in the planet. Mm. And that was really, like, it was a shock to me. I, I really believed, like, you know, I've described that they would be people who, first of all, looked at evidence and then made decisions that would benefit the most people. Right. <laughs> and ideally future generations as well. But it was, yeah, seeing their short-sightedness and seeing their lack of information that really freaked me out mm. and made me wake up to my own voice and using my own brain. So that was mm. kind of, yeah, where I started, I guess, my own agency mm. and feeling like I, I had, first of all, responsibility to try do something Um but yeah, to just start using my voice. Mm. So when was this? A couple of years after the 2009 doc? Yeah, so probably 2013, uh-huh. about then. Um, and I was also saying, like at the time, there was a national government and John Key in power. Mm-hmm. And I was really frustrated with that because particularly in the freshwater space, um, there was a lot of talk about what kind of freshwater policies they were putting in place that purported to benefit the environment when actually they were just basically a lot of spin. Mm. And, you know, on the whole, environmental decline was just going mm. gangbusters. Yeah. Um, so do you remember it being like a moment, like I'm finishing my degree or, you know, I, I've been talking to these people and I've realized that nobody's taking the action that we need to take. Like, did you write down in your journal or something? Like, (laughs) from now on, I I will do what I can? Or how was that? mm, Probably if I I had to point to one moment where I just thought, oh, my goodness, I need to be involved in this space, was um, as part of my environmental law, like resource management law class, I happened to be in Wellington when the Select Committee for Parliament was sitting. Okay. And they were basically discussing um, the whether they should continue with deep sea oil and gas drilling off the New Zealand coast, mm-hmm. which, by all accounts, from all the evidence, is just crazy, and just puts our whole continental shelf and oceanic everything at risk. Um, and so I was presenting on behalf of our law class there the reasons why we shouldn't be doing that, mm-hmm. and the questions that I got back from the MPs were just, were basically nonsensical. Mm. And, you know, I I was living in Dunedin studying at the time and I I hadn't lived in Christchurch yet. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the MPs saying to me, oh, well, yes, like, you know, thanks for your views, but don't you think as a government we've done a great job with the Christchurch earthquake? (laughs) And I was just like, yeah, like, and that's great, but how is that relevant to to freshwater policy? This topic, <laughs> and so it was just that kind of mm. um, you interaction. Saw the ability to um, throw up smoke screens and and divert topics, and 
yeah and just um you know really seeing like I could see that they didn't understand Mm. the issue Mm. and the gravity and the weight of it and I've seen you know now from the last few years of sort of particularly being involved in local government but I've seen the short-sightedness that is there Mm. which is you know in some ways just human nature I think Mm. um but it doesn't need to be like that yeah well I want to find out about what it is that you wish that they could see and explain it to us clearly but before we do that, I do have a question. You know, you're talking about native fish and other things. And I think I agree with you that it's easier if you can put it on a postcard or it has a, a mm. huggable quality, mm. you know. Um, to what extent do you think, because I'm, I'm just thinking about native trees or plants or things that we kind of take for granted, and yet they're vital and important as well. Have you have you given that some thought as well? Like we're meeting here in this room. We've got the we're in the Rata room, <laughs> but you know, there's presumably that's kind of a famous tree because it you know it, yeah it's got the red flowers and things. But there must be many that I've never even heard of that are out there that are also facing you know difficulties in the future. Yeah. Oh, the Ashura. Um, I think when I sort of think about why particularly Aotearoa New Zealand's biodiversity is so important and awesome Mm. it's just that and again it's it's about stories I think because it's like this is the kind of fauna and flora and unique things about this place Mm -hmm. which are found nowhere else on earth Mm. you know which developed here which have their own incredible life cycles and I guess you know I love I I I mean I love the iconic species I love the characters I love um that they do capture people Mm. in certain ways but I I know equally that the ones that we don't know about um who don't kind of get that profile have amazing stories and um, life cycles and I think increasingly the absolute weight of scientific evidence in particular is saying is actually screaming <laughs> to us humans that we neglect nature at our own peril and the sooner we can actually realize that and accept that it's only through putting the environment first, that we can actually start to, well, first of all, have a good chance at future, younger and future generations having a shot at survival, not, not just thriving. Mm. Um, you know, we're sort of back to the fundamentals of will they be able to survive? And I know that, you know, particularly in the last decade or so, that sort of seemed like, oh, maybe that's a bit dramatic. Um, but increasingly the weight, again, of scientific evidence is saying, no, that's not dramatic. That is a fundamental truth that we either are going to face head on or we're going to, yeah, face, um, put our kids and grandkids in a really unfair position where they need to try to figure out our mess, essentially. Yeah, it's said many different ways, but one of the things that often comes up on the podcast is that 
we are not inheritors of wealth from our parents. We're guardians of the future for our children. And it's that sort of con concept, isn't it? Rather than it's just, it's here for me to extract and use today. It's that longer term vision and thinking. Totally, yeah. For me, like it's in two words, it's intergenerational justice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just can't stress enough to people, like especially in my position now as an environment Canterbury counsellor and sort of seeing the state that particularly our, you know, local Canterbury environment is in, mm. it's not looking good. And, you know, unless we really do act now, and particularly if we think of a globe, like a, at a global scale, mm. it's the next five to 10 years or we've really screwed things up. Mm. And, and it's, yeah, it's not, unfortunately, that's not dramatic. It's just the facts. Mm. Um, but yeah, I increasingly I have hope there. Like I think the last five years has been pretty depressing. Um, but yeah, for a number of reasons, yeah, I think I think there is hope now. And and I but like I'm a real I, I don't know. I feel like I'm like an optimistic pragmatist. So I you know I am pretty skeptical about what people say and greenwash and that kind of thing but yeah for reasons that I can see I I can see that we maybe are heading in the right direction mm -hmm. well, I think there's an openness to these discussions whereas in the past people may have just shut it down and oh, well, that's profit that's business we've got to get on with it yeah um, I interviewed Colin Merck from Lincoln University um, now a couple months ago and we had this fascinating conversation I'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes I ended up I went to him actually to talk about rabbits at the Christchurch airport but yeah. then we ended up talking about um, native trees and imported trees and just the and just to summarize it, the idea is that for some reason, particularly here, when we have a new road going up, we would traditionally plant not native trees. We'd we'd plant trees that have been imported, and in a way, bringing our own mindset that we don't even know because we're fishing the water. That well, we need to plant oak trees, and we need to plant this other tree. You know that that represents in some ways, a completely foreign location. <laughs> but yeah. it's in our minds that, well, the trees will fall and then, you know, rather than being there all year long. And what he was saying is, well, wouldn't it be great if we could have a reconception? And actually, when we come to, there's a new street going in, we could actually plant native trees and then the, you know, the, the birds that we were mentioning before would have mm. something to feed on and come back to rather than, bringing in our, in some ways, imported colonial ideas about what a street should look like. Oh, absolutely. I I love Colin and his work, and I really respect him. And he has an amazing vision, you know, for the city and actually the region where it is about weaving that biodiversity back into our living and working environment mm. instead of it being like, you know, here is... Here's the city, and outside of there, say on Banks Peninsula or elsewhere, is where nature is. Mm -hmm. That's that's not the way forward. Nature mm -hmm. needs to be absolutely integral to the way we build our cities and live in them and experience them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I think we're broadly on the right track with that. Mm -hmm. But everything feels 
not enough and not fast enough right now. It's just sort of like we need to do more (laughs) and much, much faster. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. So freshwater and ecology and things, can you outline to us what you wished that the politicians understood? Yeah. Um, Well, I think, I mean, I know the, you know, that I'm hopeful now and that's broadly because I think we do have a number of politicians who do get it Mm -hmm. in parliament, which is fantastic. I think what I wish not only the politicians understood, but just people in general is that we need to make the sentiments that we all purport to have about providing for our kids and future generations. We need to make them real. And I don't think people grasp right now the fact that we're actually not and, you know, I mean, I'm always, I kind of pinch myself every time I go out there in the community, like I'm talking about the wider Canterbury community, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about the need for clean water, a stable climate, soils we can actually grow food in, and ideally, you know, maybe have some pasture to have some kind of livestock, you know, that kind of basic environmental basis is at risk and yeah it's um it's not intangible it's it's measurable we know that it's in a really dire state and as you know many scientists are sounding the alarm bells that unless we change the framework of our societies we are on a collision course with our own planet with ourselves and it just makes me so sad and frustrated because you know we sort of as humans we think we've kind of evolved in this certain way where we're so intelligent and we can use our brains and lift our gazes to the horizon but we just simply haven't prioritized the environment in that and we've we've believed that it is something it's a little bit of a nice to have and it's a little bit of a utopia when really it's just the fundamental basis of life on earth mm. and yeah i um i think we're getting there and the government's getting there with a number of really positive things like changing the resource management act which is hopefully coming up in the next few years and it, that's really the guiding framework for how we interact with our environment and mm. that's looking really positive and instead of saying like our current legislation is essentially death by a thousand cuts is okay where we've said development just has to have a less than minor environmental impact we're going into a space where we basically the legislation will say if you can't develop in an environmentally positive way then it's not going to happen and that's the way that we need to go and as quickly as possible Yeah, no, that's good. Well, I'd love to find out how you think we could head that direction or change. Um, Just a little comment. I had dinner last night with Aaron Carr and Jody Gustafsson, who are starting an initiative called River, which is looking at indigenous perspectives on the world, essentially. Mm. And it's really interesting what they're doing, working a lot with Canada and First Nations there, and then thinking from a Te Ao Maori perspective. Um, And one of the things that we were talking about was the term resource. And, you know, you mentioned Resource Management Act, but the very term resource implies that it's there to be used. Like it's a resource Mm. that we can take and we can extract and the resource has to be managed. Whereas, in fact, 
that that it's almost like it's us you know it, it's part of who we are as well we live here and we need to be thinking more in terms of the stewardship concepts that we're guarding we're looking after rather than this is a resource to extract and make use of absolutely and new zealand is actually um you know we're up there in terms of quite innovative legislation, for example, with Te Urawera National mm-hmm. Park in the North Island and also the Whanganui River, yeah. where they have their basically a legal entity as to themselves. Mm-hmm. We don't yet know what that's going to mean in terms of their restoration and regeneration, mm-hmm. but it's a great starting point. What's also been really exciting is in the government's most recent national policy statement for freshwater management. And it's something that hasn't really been talked about much because there's so many numbers and technicalities involved. But the overarching hierarchy which it introduces is the concept from Te Ao Māori of te mana o te wai. And that's basically the mana or the health and well-being of the water body will come first in our decision-making when it comes to our the water space Mm. and that is a fundamental change which is so exciting not only for papatapurunanga um for the iwi and hapu which are involved which now are legislated to be involved with how our water is managed um but for society as a whole because yeah now it has the health of the water first and then human needs second and then comes the commercial and um Mm you know, whatever societal demands we want to put on water. So that change in itself is huge. Mm. Yeah, well, that's why maybe that's the ray of sunshine that we're seeing, right? Like the (laughs) future. (laughs) Um, Just picking up on one thing you said, the legal personality point, that's actually fascinating to me as a lawyer because the fact that these natural bodies, if you like, you know, a mountain or a river or a, a land area can have a legal personality where I go in my head with that. And if anybody wants to do this, I'd love to talk to them. What if a company had, you know, the board members mm-hmm. and one of the board members was the mountain or the river. And what you had is a, a proxy, a, a real person would come, but mm. they would represent the legal entity that exists at law in New Zealand. And they would be able to say things like, speaking on behalf of the river, I'm not sure that I agree with this plan. Yes. <laughs> you know, the five 500-year yes. perspective that I'd like to offer on this discussion is, and that, I think, it changes the tone of the conversation again, doesn't it? Because how often are boards made up of, you know, for better or worse, we're often driven by quarterly reporting, how much were the profits, you know, rather than a long-term strategy, which says, actually, we have a bigger, there's a bigger group of stakeholders than we would traditionally identify, which traditionally would be the shareholder. You know? yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. And I, I, I think we're quite exciting to live in these days when we can even talk about these things. Yeah, it, that's a really exciting space. And actually that concept that you describe in terms of, um, yeah, first of all, potentially having sort of like that natural entity at the table, mm-hmm. um, but particularly around future generations, Apparently in Japan, they are really sort of like forging this way ahead in terms of at their governance levels. And I don't know how far this kind of, but definitely at their like higher government and regional government levels, 
they actually have people who come to um, yeah their councils or mm. whatever structure the government has and speak for future generations. And apparently they actually wear a certain kind of costume hmm. and that kind of thing to make it really clear that that is their role and they can sort of embody that voice. Mm. And I would love to see more, particularly in Aotearoa, around specifically providing for the needs of future generations and absolutely, particularly in the climate space, that is needed right now and it's needed in terms of thinking about how we set up the Climate Change Commission and the different acts and things that will support that because mm. that's the basis of how we will actually get on this pathway to providing for mm. younger and future generations. Otherwise, again, it's just sentiment. Mm. And yeah, I, I, I don't doubt that citizens on the whole, like across the globe, really believe in that that like we want to leave things in an as good of if not better state than we experience them but yeah the the actual will and the on the ground policies and change to actually make that happen just is so far away right now mm. but like i say the direction is yeah it's there's rays of light yeah. yeah it's interesting um yeah this is a great discussion because we're bouncing off each other these ideas but i lived in japan for five years and so oh. i got to know the culture and the the way of thinking quite quite a lot i moved there when i was basically 20 21 years old i think it actually seeped into me way more than i even realized but um two things on that the first one is people think of japan oh tokyo big city but actually, if you get out of Tokyo, if you go out into the regions, there are these beautiful, pristine lakes, mountains, rivers that I don't think people realize that there's a huge respect and love of the natural world within Japan. And partly, I think this relates to the Shinto religion, which is the native religion in Japan, which actually um, can identify that trees themselves may have a god <laughs> and and i think there is a respect that comes from that culture um it, it's a very uh, different way of thinking um but you see it actually coming through some movies which are for children but if you look at them there's some really deep things going on so hayao miyazaki has done a bunch of animated movies one of them is called princess mononoke and another is called Tonari no Totoro, which is um, my neighbor, the Totoro. And anyway, in both of these, nature and the protecting that goes on is a huge part that impacts all of the characters. So it's just riffing off of what you're saying about Japan. I might put links cool. to those movies. I'll send you a link to the trailer because you'd, you'd get it as soon as you watch the trailer. You'd be like, whoa, is this for kids? <laughs> um, but it, it talks about destruction of the forests and things, and it's basically coming from the industrialism of destroying the nature. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, you just... I'm, I actually just recently um, watched David Edinburgh's new hour and a half documentary about life on planet Earth, and it's he calls it his witness statement for everything he's witnessed over his mm. you know amazing career and experiencing the natural environment, and it's really just this plea to for us to rewild the world mm. and the absolute necessity in doing that, and I I really hope that you know, sort of 
big players like him and the kind of gravitas that he has with people will start well will continue to start changing that kind of mainstream idea and people's acceptance that actually we need to act on this stuff really quick Mm. um yeah yeah no that's really good so if you were going to change some things like people are listening to this there's probably a couple hundred people at least are listening right now um what what would you encourage them to be doing in their own lives or practical ways that they could do some of the things that you're talking about well it's it's a really tricky question in terms of the what can i do i mean I often respond to people asking what can I do is especially with say climate change which is sort of the all-encompassing challenge Mm. of our environmental challenges at the moment Um, but actually I I will note they're not just environmental challenges they're absolutely intrinsically linked to social injustices to poverty to everything where we've again neglected the very core and the fundamentals of what it is to be a human to mm-hmm. like love to love the world around us and that includes you know our fellow human um you know i always say it will take everyone everywhere doing everything they possibly can and so what does that mean for any one individual well for those of us with absolute privilege where we have shelter and food and can actually lift our eyes off the day-to-day and think about things um absolutely it's about being political it's about using your voice and that is because of the absolute urgency of these issues so it's everything from voting to talking to people about these issues and and just educating yourself if you feel like you're not really there Mm. um And then for some people, you know, it is that personal agency. It might just be about um, eating less meat. It might be about choosing more environmentally friendly products, that kind of thing, or recycling. But yeah, I kind of, I think for me, I always try to push people if they are able to be pushed and have the privilege to be pushed towards that political agency. Because again, it's like, we've got five or ten years and then things are kind of locked in if we don't act so yeah it's just kind of like the time is now it's Mm -hmm. not it's not in a number of decades it's not once you've got a little bit more of an education or a bit more time to do something it's either you're sort of in this now when it's required or you're not and and then how will you justify that you know, essentially Mm. for the rest of your life. And I mean, look, we all will make our own decisions and, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate that people are human. And, you know, like I said, I've come from a background of just being totally blind to my own personal responsibility and agency. (laughs) So I get it when people are just like, ah, you know, I just have other stuff going on or I can't be bothered. Um, There's only so much you can do, Mm. but, yeah, I just want people to know that their voice and their um, putting themselves out there in these political areas matters mm. and it's needed right now. Mm. Well, that's why I like doing the podcast because it highlights people's stories. So somebody listening out there, hopefully, is resonating with you and saying, you know what, I grew up in a pretty bubble world as a child. I did go to university or I didn't, I working, whatever. 
But, you know, hearing your story hopefully will help people to realize, oh, maybe I can make a change. And now what you're involved in, mm-hmm. um, can you just describe a little bit about your decision to get into that role and, and what, what that's been like? And what exactly yeah. does it involve? Yeah. So um, in 2015, I, well, I had started this Environmental Trust, Working Waters Trust, which was all about freshwater education and conservation and primarily worked with private landowners on their own land mm-hmm. for basically native fish habitat restoration. So it was really like cool projects and um, really positive with like mainly farmers working with community groups and local iwi and that kind of thing towards these restoration projects. But I got really frustrated with that because it was essentially like we were operating in these little like bubbles of regeneration and then over the fence you know I'd just see more development more habitat destruction and Mm. I was just like feeling super frustrated and I guess the sort of I knew the overwhelming weight of environmental destruction was the way we were going so I took a break and went to live and um, work on Rao Island in the Kumadex for a year mm. and I was running the biodiversity and science projects there for the Department of Conservation but a number of agencies like Met Service and even um, Scripps Institute which is one of the main international like carbon dioxide monitoring mm. programs around the world and so that where was exactly is so Rao <laughs> Island <laughs> good question it's, it's, it's virtually um, it's a five day boat ride right from Auckland mm-hmm. It's New Zealand's northernmost island. Okay. It's about halfway between New Zealand and Tonga. Mm-hmm. And it's part of this active volcanic chain of islands, um, which stems from New Zealand up towards the Pacific. Mm. And it's just like this biodiversity wonderland. You know, there's like humpback whales breaching in the bay. There's like millions of seabirds everywhere. And it's it's just, it's an incredible place. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I was running the science and contracts there. How, how many there. people are there, or is it? There's only seven remote? people on the island. Wow. Um, but sometimes boat, like either documentary crews or right, come sort visit. of heritage expeditions, run a few sort of tourism ventures there. Mm-hmm. But you'd only get like, you know, maybe one or two boats every few months. So it's very isolated. Very remote. And um, yeah, you can't fly there in a plane. Right. um, Unless you're actually um, on death's door, basically. And so that was awesome. But at the same time, uh, you know, we have the internet there still. So I could see like around the world, the kind of climate movements building in terms of global climate marches and that kind of thing. And I realized that the boat would get me back to Christchurch just a week before the local government elections. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to run for regional council. Um, I had no, you know, none of the things that people say you need to run for that kind of position, no um, public profile, no, yeah, name recognition or anything like that. And and I was just like, look, I don't see anyone in that space. Um, and so I'm just going to go for it. So I eventually ran with a group called The People's Choice and it worked really well because I basically just made videos from the island Mm -hmm. and they were doing the kind of like billboards and leaflets on the ground. But long story short, I returned to Christchurch and was the highest polling candidate 
for Environment Canterbury with like 55,000 votes. And I just thought, oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So what had gone on? Social media videos had worked or what? (laughs) Yeah, well, the social media videos went really well. But Uh I think, I think with local government, most people, it's just about your little photo and your little blurb. Uh And that was really about putting the planet and people first. Right. So the mission was clear. This is why I'm doing this. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, But I did think, I mean, to me, that was, again, a big wake up call. I just thought, wow, like local government in particular Mm. is right for people who, like there are avenues of change there. And Mm. if, if we get, people who really care about this stuff running which so few people do um we can really change things so yeah i was just amazed but started my term as a regional councillor and that was a really interesting environment because i came into what i would call like a pseudo democratic structure where we at the time the previous government had sacked the elected representatives on Environment Canterbury and put in their own government appointees. So when I was elected, they were sort of doing a transition structure where they had half government appointed and half elected councillors. So we were kind of in there together. And then um, just this last term in 2019, it was back to full democracy for Canterbury, which again did this next step change in terms of numbers on council being in that basically we're an environmental majority now. Mm. So the role of the regional council is basically all in the natural environment. It's air, it's water, it's soil. It's mainly has a regulatory function in terms of consents and that kind of thing. Mm. But the opportunity for leadership primarily in terms of emissions reductions, but also adaptation to climate change, is absolutely there. And our scope for leadership in facilitating regeneration of the natural environment is also there. So it's really exciting this term. Mm, Another ray of sun. (laughs) A total ray of sun. Yeah. And like historically in New Zealand, regional councils have generally been dominated by agricultural interests and mainly farmers, and it's been a very, um, yeah, I think an, I would say an older demographic as well. Um, one of my roles is I co-chair what's called the Young Elected Members Network for Aotearoa, and to be young in local government, it's anyone who was 40 or under mm-hmm. at the date of election. Um, and when I ran in 2016, despite 50% of our population being 40 or under only six percent of elected members were 40 or under in 2019 we basically doubled that so now we've got 12 maybe 13 we haven't heard the official numbers um of young people who are in these elected roles but again we need to double it again um and that's a really exciting area of change as well that people are seeing not only local but central government too as basically the best job in activism you never knew you could actually have mm. so yeah i'm it's another space to feel positive about mm. well if people take nothing else away i think there's an encouragement there to try these things to to 
put your hand up and, and go for it, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, unfortunately, elected representative roles have been really open to basically lethargy, abuse, in terms of like, mm. you don't have any accountability, you literally get elected for a three-year term. And unless like the press ask about your attendance or something, you know, there's just... right. You just do what you will for three years. And, yeah, that's been basically a place where people can just sit and under-invest in critical infrastructure, under-invest in society and our environment. And, unfortunately, that's what's happened. Mm. And I don't think there's been any ill intention there. I think it's just come from our background of being pretty comfortable Mm. and change is much more difficult than just writing things out. Mm. Well, I think we've gotten a sense, though, that, that there is potential there, so hopefully people out there can take that on board. Yeah. Um, can I just ask you a question? I'm just really curious now about the island and yeah. the fact that there were seven people there. Um, when you look back on that experience, like that's pretty remote. You're not going down to watch the next movie. <laughs> you know, there's no big restaurant you can go out to what are your memories of that and how do you think it's changed you as a person in terms of having been there in a remote island like that because that's a pretty unusual experience I would say it was it was an incredible time um I think what it showed me is well I think what it demonstrated is I I got to live the life of an island hermit which was in this like you know paradise and I found that it wasn't very rewarding (laughs) because I knew that I you know I just happened to be in this totally privileged position where Mm. I got to be there and experience that but what about everyone else Mm. and that shouldn't be that kind of experience shouldn't be, yeah, just for those of us who happen to um, stumble across it or have the privilege to be there. It should be something that is implicit with being a human being in this world, that you can marvel at the wonders of the world and be part of that. And I think, yeah, I mean, probably the things that do stand out, again, it was like, knowing that that sort of global climate consciousness was taking hold around the world. And it was actually funny. It was knowing that even in that isolation, you could contribute to that. So, for example, um, I organised our climate march on, on Rao Island and we got international coverage in The Guardian because they were like, the entire population <laughs> of seven people on Rao Island turned out for the climate march. And it was just feeling like you you know as humans globally we can be you know because of technology we can be part of things together and we can change things together and you know despite being totally isolated on a random island in the middle of nowhere Mm. you can be part of that and so yeah for those of us who actually are present in society um, I think it just added to that me being convinced that, you know, we can actually 
again, use our own agency and use our own efforts and brains and feelings to try communicate to others that they can be part of it. Mm. Well, that's the sense I've gotten from our interview. And it's interesting that that was a catalyst to you then going, well, I'll put my name forward to this, even though you were on the island, you know, doing videos and things from there. And yeah, hopefully people listening can take encouragement from that, that there's maybe opportunities that they've never looked at or explored. So yeah, that's really good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We went to many different locations and topics ranging from... Um, you know, the native fish of New Zealand through to freshwater policy. (laughs) It's been really fascinating. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Stephen. No, I loved the conversation. And yeah, I hope, I hope that we can all just, yeah, be part of this. Mm. It's exciting. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Lan. I know for me, there were several things that stood out. I just loved her attitude of having a proactive approach and putting herself out there to become an environment Canterbury counselor. I think we can all learn from that attitude, and I'm sure that there's many contributions that all of you listening could have as well. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? Until next time. Mm-hmm.